I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 29 this morning. Psalm 29. There is a time that I've been taking recently to go over some things just that we need to know as a church, things I communicate from time to time, but don't often take time out to really focus on them. And we talked about just general following the Spirit in our lives and what that looks like over the last three weeks. And I was trying to figure out exactly what to do. I I really told you last week I'm eager to get back into the text of Revelation, but there's going to be a huge interruption again to that because we're going to go through the Christmas season. And I could preach on, you know, the apocalypse uh, and the the coming judgments over the Christmas season, but I don't know if that's... I'm going to have to stretch for the application there, you know what I'm saying, Uh, in, in the season a little bit, although there is an incredible application there. But what I thought I'd do is can sort of continue in this vein. I would like to take three Lord's Days and actually preach on the topic of biblical worship, as the slide gave away here a second ago. Biblical worship. After that, in go, a couple of Sundays before December and into the Christmas season, we're going to focus on the reality of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ coming to us. And that'll take us through the the Christmas season. I'd like to do that from Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2. So we're going to wade through some of the theology in Hebrews and celebrate the the incarnation of Christ through that. And we're looking forward to to that as well. And then we will pick up with full steam, Revelation, and uh, hopefully uninterrupted, and we'll finish it up uh, uh, starting in, in the month of January. But this is a really important topic. You know, a lot of people look at churches and they're like, well, what's the church like? What's their vibe? Uh, what's the music like, they want to know. And by the way, music and worship are not the same thing. Worship is, is, uh, is a big idea. Music is just one little part of that. It's really because of the Pentecostal movement that we now equate praise music with worship. And that's, that's documented. In fact, there's a dissertation coming out of uh, Southwestern Seminary in a year or two uh, that actually traces that history. There's so much about our worship to that in, in general in the evangelical church that's been impacted by theologies. We have no idea where that theology came from. But because people ask all the time, you know, why do we do things this way and, and why does a church do it this way and another church do it this way when it comes to worship, I thought it would be really important to look at this. But that's really a minor reason why I want to go, go to this topic. A bigger reason is John 4.23. Jesus said to the woman at the well that the day is coming when it's not going to be in this mountain or that mountain that you worship, but God is going to have people worshiping in spirit and in truth. And he says to the woman at the well, the father is seeking people like that to worship him. The, the, the thing that God is looking for is not necessarily just followers. He's, he's looking for worshipers. We're created to worship. And what we're doing here, even this morning, is what we're going to be doing for eternity. Worship is central. And so as a pastor, if I'm a shepherd and worship is one of the biggest things that we can do, that I'm failing as a shepherd unless I lead the congregation in worship. In fact, it's the reason I do the call to worship at the beginning of every service. I feel it's the pastor's responsibility to call the church to worship and then to have oversight over that worship. Uh, To one degree or less, uh, we have uh, a lot of wonderful uh, men and women here who do all kinds of ministry, and we're blessed in this church to have uh, men who can lead worship and who can put worship together and, and, and know what they're doing. And so we rely on that. Uh, often, but at the same time, it, it's got to come to the the pastor or pastors of the church 
as they lead the church in worship. And so this is an incredible thing to really think about. And so I want to take a, a few Sundays and talk about what the Bible really says about worship in the big picture. We're really going to probe simply a definition of worship. And the definition alone gives us so much to think about, about uh, when it comes to what we are doing when we worship. Let's begin by reading this psalm, which is actually a call to worship. Psalm 29, one, uh, we'll read uh, verses um, one through, uh, well, we don't read the whole psalm. I'm not sure exactly how much of the psalm I'm going to read, but I'll quit at a certain point before we get to the end. Let's read together. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. Larry McKay was one of the deacons in the church I pastored in Hendersonville, North Carolina for 13 years. Larry is now with the Lord, but he was a godly man who was more than 30 years older than I am. I actually baptized Larry. In fact, Larry was the first person I ever baptized. He came out of the Presbyterian church, so he had been sprinkled as an infant, but he told me as a 67-year-old man that he had been studying baptism on his own and came under the conviction that he needed to be immersed as a believer. So I immersed Larry, made him a Baptist. And I was really nervous about it because there was something fearful about baptizing a man who has been walking with the Lord longer than you've been alive. Larry had been a dairy farmer most of his life, and that meant he had to get up about 3 o'clock in the morning and start the chores. And when Larry, later on in his, I think later, maybe, maybe his 20s, uh, he got really serious about the Lord. When he dedicated his life to the Lord, he got very serious about his own personal study and reading. And so if he wanted to start chores at three, he had to get up at two o'clock in the morning if he was going to read his Bible and pray. And so he did. He trained himself to get up at two o'clock in the morning, have his time with the Lord. And so he would start the chores at three o'clock. And he did that every morning, every morning, all of his life. But my favorite memory of Larry was from a time when our church was worshiping on a Sunday morning. We were all singing together. And I think the hymn in my memory uh, was Jesus, lover of my soul. And it was one of those moments that happens from time to time in a congregation. I think you've all had this experience where there, there's this unusual movement of the Spirit. You never know when it's going to happen. But there's this unusual movement in the Spirit, and the congregation is truly singing in one voice, and everybody is savoring every word of the hymn text. 
You, O Christ, are all I want. More than all in you I find. Raise the fallen, cheer the faint, heal the sick and lead the blind. Just and holy is your name. I am all unrighteousness, vile and full of sin I am. You are full of truth and grace. And on that moment, the last note lingered and the song ended. And then came that moment we all know where everybody kind of takes a breath and it's natural for somebody to say, Amen. But on this occasion, the silence lingered. And then I'll never forget, Larry uttered a single spontaneous word that I had never heard before heard in public worship. It wasn't a memorized response. It came involuntarily from his heart as he was moved by the grace of Christ. Larry just said, wow, wow. I'll never forget that wow because it reminds me of what it looks like when we genuinely worship. What is worship? Well, worship is something we don't have to learn how to do. God already equipped us to worship. We're born this way. Worship is simply the response that comes from our heart when we encounter something that's awesome or amazing to us. It makes us say, wow. It comes from our heart, but we in turn express it in thoughts and in words and in actions. Because we are moved by those things which cause us to wonder or bring us great joy or pleasure. And as I said, God created us this way. We are impressed with size and significance and strength and grandeur and glory. Sometimes so much so it makes us step back and say, wow. Worship has a wow factor. Some of you perhaps have stood gaping at the majesty of the Grand Tetons. Or maybe you've been amazed at the blue waters of the Caribbean. Or perhaps you've looked in wonder at the iconic beauty and colors of the Grand Canyon. Some of you may know about this place in the Grand Canyon located off the south rim. You've got to hike about a mile to get there, but it's not a very hard hike. It's called Ooh-Ah Point. I don't know who named it, but no one has to explain what this sign means. Everybody gets it. No one's like, what is that, a Native American saying? I mean, what, you know, why do they name this, this ooh-ah point? In fact, one online article says, it's quite a funny name for a viewpoint, but once you reach that spot, the answer as to why it was named such will hit you hard and fast. How can this person be so sure? I know why. Because everyone is a worshiper. We can't help it. Now, some of you have seen me use this illustration before because I love it. I've talked about it before. Don't think that this is just your pastor going see now and forgetting, you know, as you get older, what illustrations you've used and what you haven't, okay? There probably is that example, but this isn't one of them. I know what I'm doing here. But I, I, I love this story. <clears throat> I know some of you haven't heard it, but um, <clears throat> it's simply the, the, the <clears throat> missionaries that we know in Australia, excuse me, <clears throat> who, uh, he, he's, this, this guy's really in shape and he's often out in the ocean snorkeling. And, and one day a, a spout blew up and he went to investigate and he saw a blue whale up close for the first time. It was like just yards off from it. And he said it was, it was so big 
that his tail disappeared down into the blackness. And he just stood looking at this thing. And all of a sudden, the tail lifted up and swished down one time. And that thing was gone, replaced by bubbles of water. And he said, I, I swam back to the boat and I climbed in. And he said, I was just shaking with adrenaline. And he said, the reason was I have never been before in the presence of something so awesome. And then he said, immediately the thought struck him. What is it going to be like? We are finally standing in the very presence of God. And that leads us actually to define Christian worship. If worship is a response that comes from our heart when we are encountered, when we encounter something that we think is awesome or amazing, then Christian worship is the response that comes from our heart when we encounter the living and true God. We see that illustrated for us, I think dramatically so, in Psalm 29. The first verse of this uh, psalm is a call for the Lord's people to worship him. But in writing this psalm, David, it says it's a psalm of David in the inscription. David heightens the intensity not by calling a whole bunch of people to worship God like he sometimes does, calling heaven and earth and, and everybody in the world, all the nations to worship him. He actually heightens the worship by focusing not on human worshipers, but on heavenly worshipers. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The term heavenly beings is literally sons of the mighty ones. Powerful spirit beings. They are being called upon in the psalm to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, which means they're told to proclaim to the Lord how glorious and powerful he is. To stand in awe and wonder. I mean, these creatures that we would stand in awe and wonder at are called to stand in awe and wonder before the Lord and to respond to his infinite majesty. And if the most powerful heavenly beings are being called upon to worship God, surely God's people should gratefully and humbly join in the chorus. The word glory is especially fitting to describe God. The Hebrew word that is translated glory is actually the word kabod. I know that's not a normal Hebrew word probably you know, but it's a really important word in the Old Testament. Kabod means glory, splendor, majesty. But it's a certain kind of glory. The word kavod actually means something that's heavy, something that's weighty, significant. In other words, something that's a really big deal. True glory does not evoke a response like a light little surprised wow, or a more profound wow, but even like a whoa, it's, it's, it's a heavy wow that glory provokes. That's kavod, and it goes hand in hand with infinite power. But notice the psalm continues in verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The word worship here is a Hebrew word that means to bow down. And the reference to the splendor of holiness has to do with coming into the presence of God who himself is holy. So if you're looking at verses 1 and 2, it gives us this complete picture. The mightiest spirit beings in all of creation are being called to worship, to approach the brilliant splendor 
of God's holy presence and to respond by acknowledging that all glory and honor and power belong to him. Here is a high and lofty call to worship. But in the rest of the psalm, the display of God's glory and power and holy presence and the mighty, the, the, the mighty angels behold in the heavens is made visible on earth. God reveals himself through the awesome power of this massive storm front that moves in from the Mediterranean Sea and sweeps down from the north, starting in Lebanon, sweeping down uh, southeastward toward Jerusalem and down to the wilderness of Kadesh. You You can track it geographically in the psalm. That's what's going on beginning in verses three and four. God is likened to the storm. His powerful voice is heard in the deafening thunder and in the mighty wind. This is not nature's power you're reading about. This is God's power. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. And the idea of being over the waters and many waters in particular is a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. So it's, 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 a, it's a storm that's coming from the west over the sea and it's going to hit the land. And it, the, the psalmist David is describing the power of the storm, but he's really describing the power of God. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Now, in the other verses, we watch, this, we watch the storm move inland. It's so catastrophic. It actually twists and snaps the famous mighty cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and serene like a young wild ox. In other words, the storm causes the mountains of Lebanon and Syrian, which is actually Mount Hermon. Maybe you don't even know where Mount Hermon is, but Sir Hermon and Syrian are the same mountain. These are mountain ranges. I mean, they're mighty mountain ranges. If you're from the Rockies, you might complain and say, well, they look like really big hills to me, okay? But over there, these are, the, these are the mighty ranges. And it says the storm causes them to skip away like a frightened animal. That's the idea. They're not skipping merrily here. They're, they're skipping away. They're running away. And it's a metaphor. The mountains themselves are, are quaking and running away from the power of this storm. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. That's a lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh, which means it's moved downward to the south. And it's sweeping over the area where Jerusalem is. And in David's time, the tabernacle, the center of Israel's worship, was set up near Jerusalem, a little bit to the north on the hill of Gibeon. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. It's so powerful, it causes premature birth in the animal kingdom and takes the leaves off of the trees. And then David writes, and in his temple, everyone cries glory. You see that word glory? That's the word of worship. That's the wow factor in this psalm. Now, this is curious because there is no temple during the time of David, right? Historically, Solomon, his son, builds the temple. David's planning for it, but there's no temple. So David could here be referring to the worshipers at the high place of Gibeon. That's where the sacrifices were, were, being, uh, uh, taken, were taking place during his day. And he was making plans, of course, at that time to build the temple in Jerusalem. 
So when he says, everyone cries glory, I'll tell you what I like to imagine here. The worshipers gathered together on the high place of Gibeon, bringing their sacrifices, looking out at the darkening sky as the storm gets nearer. Some of you have been in a, in a sporting event or a picnic or something, and you're praying for good weather, but you're looking at the blackening sky and you start hearing thunder as it gets a little bit closer. And the, pretty soon the heavy drops of rain start to fall. You know what I'm talking about? And I imagine them doing this. And as they're standing there deciding what to do, there's this brilliant lightning flash and a thunderclap and everybody cries out, glory or kavod in response to the power of God in the storm. But there's another way of looking at the temple here in the psalm. Remember, David begins by calling the heavenly beings to worship. And in other psalms, particularly Psalm 11, when David speaks of the temple, he is speaking of the heavenly temple, the place where God actually dwells. In fact, in Psalm 11, verse 4, David writes, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. David then could be imagining the glorious heavenly worshipers bowing before their creator as they themselves are moved, not by the power of the storm or by a sudden powerful lightning flash, which to them wouldn't have meant anything, but by God's glory and power They're moved by his holiness. In response to that, they cry out just as we should. Kavod, glory, or woe. Or as my friend Larry McKay might have put it, wow. That's what worship is at its essence. Now, in the remaining of our minutes, I want to begin to unpack the significance of this single idea that Christian worship is a response that comes from our heart. When we encounter the living and true God, when we ourselves are confronted with his glory and power and holiness and goodness and grace and wisdom, that worship is a response. If you were sitting somewhere and a person walked by and said, what are you doing? And you answered, well, I'm worshiping God. How would you know that's what you're doing? The answer is, if you were responding in some way to truth about God because you were moved by that. Worship is not so much an action as it is a reaction. And that is why there is a little tiny Hebrew word in the Psalms. We see it all over the scripture in the Old Testament. We see it particularly in the Psalms. And this little tiny word is essential to worship. It's a little word that may seem so insignificant to you that you might not have ever noticed it before, even in English translation. It is a little Hebrew word, key. I'll spell it C-H-I if you're writing it down. Key. This word, even in Hebrew, is so slight that sometimes it stands alone, but sometimes it's just connected to another word. It's a little tiny word, but it has big meaning. What does the Hebrew word key mean? Well, most of the time it's translated in English by the little word for or because. Let me give you some examples. We opened our worship service this morning with Psalm 99. I'm looking at the last verse of Psalm 99, verse 9, where it says this, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God 
is holy. The word I underlined there in Hebrew, that's the word key. It's four. Now notice the first two lines, is, they're calling us to do something. Exalt the Lord. Worship. Those, those are verbs of worship. The word worship means to bow down, literally. But then it gives us a reason to do so. For the Lord our God is holy. Do you see how that word functions? That's the Hebrew word key. Why should we exalt the Lord? Why should we worship? For the Lord our God is holy. In other words, there is a reason to worship. There is a ground. There is a foundation. There is something to respond to. And if you will open your eyes to this foundation as you're reading scripture that call us to worship, like so often we see in the Psalms, your understanding of the Lord will deepen. And guess what? If your understanding of the Lord deepens, the potential for your worship to deepen goes hand in hand with that. Psalm 100 is a psalm that you probably know very well. And if we look at the very, uh, look at the psalm, you'll notice that he's calling us to worship here. Make a joyful noise of the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. That's a term of worship, service. Come into his presence with singing. So far, so good. All these verbs are about worshiping. Verse three says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us. And, not, and, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So if you look at verse 3, this is the ground of the worship. Now notice you don't have a key in this verse. You don't have the word for. And I wanted to show you this as an example to show you that oftentimes you might not see the word for there, but the idea is there. There's a call to worship and then there's a foundation. Why are we called to worship? Because he's God. He made us. We belong to him. And then the psalm repeats the same idea. Basically, you have the same thing in the second stanza. Enter in his gates with thanksgiving. Those are verbs of worship. Come to him with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. These are all verbs about worship. And then he gives us the reason for it. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love, his chesed, endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 96 is one of my favorite calls to worship. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And we learn some things about God in those three verses, but really all they're doing is telling us to worship God. Finally, we get to verse four and look at what we see. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And I'll tell you what, if our conviction of how great he is and how high he is, is profound, our worship, our singing, our praising will be profound. We respond when we are moved by something and we have to know what we're ooing and eyeing at if we are going to worship in a way that is worthy of this God. In Psalm 136, he says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then he says, for his steadfast love, there's chesed again, those are my favorite Hebrew words, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then notice the refrain, every time, this is that Psalm you know of, that for every verse, uh, for about 26 verses, it says, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. If you read that psalm, the first line of almost every verse is a call to worship. And the second line is the ground for the worship. And the ground for worship in Psalm 136 is God's steadfast love enduring forever. So worship is a response. And quickly this morning, I'd like to make some application in two different directions here. Two very quick areas of application. And we're going to build on this for the next two Lord's Days. But I want to just start by saying, first of all, uh, something about responding to God in public worship. And, and this, talks, th- this gets into what we're doing here this morning. I want you to understand that when we come together to worship as a congregation, you are being led as a congregation to respond to God in particular ways. And those ways are prescribed for us by God from the scriptures. I'll I'll say more about that in in a couple of weeks ahead. But this morning, I just want to emphasize the fact that we are indeed responding to something when we worship. And I want you to think about the fact that when we structure public worship, we're thinking about your response to God and what you are responding to. And if you as a congregation are aware of this, it will enrich and deepen your experience here. Now, I'm not using the experience in a light way, but we, we have a worship experience when we come here. We, we enter into worship with God. And it's more meaningful when we understand what we're doing. So let's just emphasize here what my point by examining what we've done already this morning in our morning worship service. So I started with a call to worship. So why did I do that? Because, you know, at the beginning of a service, or traditional to have a call to worship, right? No. We do it first because a call to worship is modeled for us in the scripture, and that's, that's good enough. But beyond that, I read the scripture at the beginning of the service because I am giving to the congregation something to respond to. So we said this morning, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. And then I led in prayer, thanking the Lord for this truth and asking the Lord to give us grace to respond to this truth in a way that pleases him. And then we sing. Why? Because that's what you do, you know? When you, uh, when, you, when you open, right, in the, in the contemporary worship movement, they say you've got to have three songs in a row at the very beginning of the service. You've got to have a hand clapper, a hand raiser, and a hand holder, okay? You have something to get everybody pumped up, and you've got everybody thinking and, and, and feeling. And, and they know that's what they're doing. They're, 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 they're doing it for the emotional effect. There, there are books and articles written about that. But this is not why we sing, There's a much more profound reason than that. We are responding to the truth that was just proclaimed. So we sang when morning gilds the skies with this repeating phrase, may Jesus Christ be praised, may Jesus Christ be praised. And recognizing how great the Lord is and how holy he is, we proclaim this refrain. In fact, Brother Eric gave a little word of testimony that was unplanned. It wasn't in our notes here, okay? And that happens sometimes with all of us who are leading worship. You know what he was doing? He was responding to what was about to happen and what the scripture had said. He, he in a sense, was modeling for us and we were empathizing with him 
in this and responding in the same way. But then we sang, O God, our help in ages past, which is a praise to the Lord that he has become our home, H-O-M-E. That's what this song, is, this song is all about. God is our home. He's the place we're welcomed. He's the place where we belong. Have you ever noticed this before? O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Under the shadow of thy throne, still may we dwell secure. Sufficient is thy arm alone and our defense is sure. Before the hills in order stood or earth received her frame. In other words, God built the house of the world from everlasting thou art God to endless years the same because God will always keep us at home. And next we read the scripture together. Why do we do that? Because we're proclaiming more truth to respond to. So uh, Brother Andrew read Zechariah chapter nine. Behold, your king is coming to you. He shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from rivers, from the river to the ends of the earth. Then the Lord will appear over his people and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine in this land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. And then a group stepped forward and sang, God of wonders, looking all throughout scripture at how God's majesty has been exalted through his power. And I think the main thing that's happening there is that this group, when they sing, and if, you're, if you ever do special music, as we call it sometimes, think about this. You're responding in testimony to the truth. And we are responding with you, which means it needs to be clear and, and exact and, and biblical because we're responding to what has been said and in our minds and hearts, just like when somebody's praying and we think through and, and, and respond. We're saying, yes, God, you are a God of wonders. Yes, you did that. Yes, Lord, we believe in you. And perhaps the words of Zechariah 9 are still ringing in our ears. How great is your goodness? How great is your beauty? Next, we sang another song, but not until we read Colossians 2, 8 through 15. Do you know why we read this as a congregation? I hope you can guess by now. It's so that we can respond to what God's word says. It's not just a part of the service. We're putting forth truth to respond to. And here, thinking about this debt that Christ, by his death, canceled out for us, disarming our enemies and his and triumphing over them. And then we sing these words, yea, justified, sanctified through the blood. And and we're looking forward to being glorified. This is what the Lord has done for us. We read about it. We say it together as, as a congregation. And then we sing about this wonderful truth. And then I step forward and let our congregation in prayer as a further response to these truths that have been rehearsed this morning. And I lead us in prayer each Lord's day, not just because, but because we are responding to truth. And in this prayer, we often bring needs to the Lord because you know what? At this point in the service, having recognized the glory of the Lord and how sinful we are and how needy we are, we seek his grace as we continue to hear the word proclaimed and as we continue to be a needy people. Now we're at the preaching portion of the service. And in this portion, and by the way, the worship service isn't just to get something, you know, the worship service isn't just the singing, you get that over so the preaching can happen. No, no, no. This is the, we're all doing this together, every part of it. And, and now in, in, in the preaching and the proclamation of the word, we're saying, this is what the Lord says. And when I finish preaching, we're going to sing again. 
But it's not because we have a closing song. We're not closing anything. We're responding to what we've just heard. And when we finish singing, there's going to be a benediction. A benediction is not a closing prayer. It's a biblical text. They're words from God himself assuring us of his blessing, assuring us that if we walk with him in faith and continue to worship, his grace will sustain us. Anything we heard that morning where we're like, wow, I I really need to follow the Lord in that area. We, We hold out his grace and his mercy that he will do this for us as we simply walk with him in faith. So our worship, if you notice, begins and ends with scripture. Our worship is literally bookended by the word of God, which is really the only truth that matters. And that brings us to the second point of the application I wanted to make, namely responding to God in private worship. And we'll say more about this in in a couple weeks ahead, but if we read a benediction at the end of the worship service, what is the opportunity to respond The answer is we continue to respond to the truth with our personal worship of God. Shown in our own prayer and holy living throughout the entire week. Because God is calling us to be worshipers. In fact, I think one of the most profound verses about this, even though we know it by heart, many of us, and we've seen it so often that we stop thinking about it. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul puts this very pointedly when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Those are Old Testament terms for a perfect sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here he is saying that not only do we lift our response to God in worship, standing in awe of him, he says we actually offer ourselves. We love him and serve him and seek his will for each day as a response to who he is and what he has done. You see, our life is a response to God in worship. And this is the basis for what we are going to see about worship in the next couple of Lord's days as we continue to probe these ideas. And we worship the Lord in this way, always mindful always anticipating that one day we will behold the Lord Jesus face to face. We will be in his presence and we will behold the very throne of God and then we will continue in perfected form in true holiness, the worship we have already been given to the Lord all along. My brother, Larry McKay, went to be with the Lord in August of 2019, literally two years and two months ago today. We attended his funeral in Hendersonville and we're reflecting on Larry's life as, as, as we reflect on people's lives during funerals. And the thought came to me of Larry passing from this life into the presence of the Lord. And that first moment when he opened his eyes to behold heaven's splendor and all of the brilliant colors and sounds that we can only dream about now and the Lord Jesus standing there to meet him. And I couldn't imagine Larry jumping up and running to the Lord or starting to sing loudly or any number of external responses that we can think of. But I imagine Larry just overwhelmed at the scene and feeling a deep and general and, and genuine gratitude and simply uttering the word, wow. 
That's the wow factor in worship. And we can know that now if we deepen in our understanding of God. It's what true worship is all about. And I want to ask the Lord to give us the grace to respond to him in such a way as a congregation, both in our active public worship among the people of God as we encourage one another and also in our private worship as we give our very lives to him every single day. Father, thank you.